0: previously, we have talked about our body's natural adhesives in times of leakage, platelets. We discussed the consequences of low platelets in depth, covering the investigations and management indicated in these settings. What do we do when we have the opposite, that is, a high platelet count? Take, for instance, a patient who comes in through the ER. As part of your initial workup, you order a complete blood count, or CBC. Soon after, the results of your testing are back, and you notice an elevated platelet count of 700,000 per microliter of blood. How do you proceed? Today, our patient has thrombocytosis, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on-call. Today's episode is called The Essentials, an approach to thrombocytosis, and is aimed at helping you interpret an elevated platelet count. Now, time for a minute physiology. Platelets are an essential component of blood, initiating the first part of the hemostatic response to endothelial injury. From small cuts to large vessel injuries, our platelets start this process to prevent us from exsanguinating. These minuscule particles are synthesized in our bone marrow and originate as part of the myeloid lineage of the hematopoietic stem cell differentiation process. Also known as thrombocytes, they are enucleated fragments derived from parent megakaryocytes. A hormone known as thrombopoietin, or TPO, is integral to the maturation of these cells and is produced primarily in the liver and the kidneys. This is why patients with advanced liver disease often have low platelet counts. In response to injury, platelets commence the process of hemostasis. This is divided into several steps, starting with platelet adherence to the endothelial wall of blood vessels. Subsequently, platelets are activated and aggregate together to form a platelet plug. Both an adequate platelet count and normal platelet function are crucial to the initial hemostatic process. The platelet plug is further stabilized through activation of the coagulation cascade, or secondary hemostasis, where the formation of fibrin strands strengthens the plug to create a clot. All right, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. To measure a platelet count, we need to perform a CBC. The CBC is routinely done for evaluating common medical presentations, including anemia or infection. However, platelets are not typically the focus of this diagnostic investigation. Moreover, when a CBC is done specifically to look at the platelet count, this is usually done when one suspects a platelet deficiency, particularly in the context of spontaneous bruising, a bleeding diathesis, or petechiae. Be sure to check out our podcast, A Paucity of Platelets and Approach to Thrombocytopenia, for more on this. So when does thrombocytosis, or an excess of platelets, become clinically relevant? Before we dive into this, we should clarify some definitions. Normal values for platelet counts will vary depending on the laboratory's assay. But in general, numbers between 150,000 to 450,000 per microliter of blood are accepted as within range. Most importantly, always remember to ensure your patients are clinically stable. Although you might be interpreting a CBC from your office in the lab, or on the wards, keep your patient's safety in mind. The first step in evaluating any CBC finding is to check previous CBC measurements to assess if this could be a spurious result and whether you should consider repeating the measurement. In many cases, you will not have a recent CBC available, in which case you need to consider the clinical context in which the measurement is being done. By far the most common cause of an elevated platelet count is known as reactive thrombocytosis. Platelets are acute phase reactants, and their production can be upregulated through any inflammatory process. Consider a patient with sepsis. While bone marrow activity may respond to acute infection either through upregulation or suppression, there is often stimulus to produce more white blood cells. This drive can upregulate the other myeloid cell lines as well, including platelets. Similarly, in some types of anemia, we may see a compensatory increase in platelets as the bone marrow ramps up its production of myeloid progenitors, megakaryocytes, and consequently, platelets. Moreover, given the role of platelets in acute stress and clotting, they are also upregulated independently in these settings. Thus, any inflammatory process, notably infection, autoimmune disease, and malignancy, can ultimately create thrombocytosis. Another way to approach platelet disturbances is based on their sequestration and destruction. Typically, this is mediated by the spleen. As the spleen usually removes old platelets from the circulation, the platelet count can rise when the spleen is absent, surgically removed, or is not functioning properly. Removal of the spleen, or a splenectomy, creates a state called anatomic asplenia. Repeated injury to the spleen, as in sickle cell disease, causes a state called functional asplenia, The presence of Howell-Jolly bodies in red blood cells indicates functional or anatomic asplenia, which can be an important clue to the etiology of thrombocytosis. So far, it appears as though elevated platelet counts serve as a proxy for other clinical states. However, does an elevated platelet count confer any risk in and of itself? This brings us to the next component of our approach, the myeloproliferative neoplasms. What are myeloproliferative neoplasms? They are a type of blood cancer characterized by specific genetic mutations that result in overproliferation of myeloid cell lines. There are several types, but the four classic disorders would be essential thrombocytosis, or ET, which is characterized by increased number of platelets, polycythemia vera, or PV, characterized by elevated hemoglobin levels, chronic myeloid leukemia, or CML associated with increased granulocytes and granulocyte precursors, and primary myelofibrosis. In these disorders, most notably in essential thrombocytosis, there can be autonomous platelet production and thrombocytosis, regardless of the typical cellular triggers which would otherwise modulate cell differentiation. While their clinical syndromes vary, the major consequences associated with them are First, a risk of transformation into acute leukemia or myelofibrosis, and second, arterial and venous thromboses with ET and PV. To better understand these neoplasms, we need to discuss their genetic basis. We first make a distinction between CML and the other neoplasms based on the presence of the Philadelphia chromosome, the result of a reciprocal translocation between chromosomes 9 and 22, resulting in the fusion gene BCR-ABL1 which constitutively promotes cell division. For ET, PV, and primary myelofibrosis, the mutations of note are JAK2, CalR, and MPL. In polycythemia vera, JAK2 is part of the diagnostic criteria and is seen in almost all cases. In ET and primary myelofibrosis, JAK2 mutations account for approximately 50% of cases. Now, what should you be looking for on history and physical exam if you are suspecting a myeloproliferative neoplasm? Symptoms suggestive of a myeloproliferative neoplasm include constitutional symptoms such as fatigue, fevers, pruritus, and night sweats. In addition, nonspecific symptoms such as headache, nausea, bony pain, and abdominal pain might also be heralds of an underlying process. One may experience vasomotor symptoms such as paresthesias and erythromyalgia, which results in hyperemic and painful extremities often worsened by exposure to heat, pressure, or stress. Clinical concern for a myeloproliferative neoplasm, especially PV and ET, is often raised with a history of recurrent, unusual, for example, Budd-Chiari syndrome, or unexplained thrombotic events. In many cases, however, these disorders are asymptomatic, particularly in younger patients. Physical examination should also be performed on any patient with a suspicion of a myeloproliftive neoplasm. On inspection, one might find plefloric skin with PV, terminal digit ischemia, features of DVT, as well as splenomegaly from extramedullary hematopoiesis. The last differential diagnosis of thrombocytosis includes rare conditions such as a TPO-producing tumor or familial thrombocytosis. Acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, can also result in thrombocytosis, although myeloblasts would typically be observed in the peripheral blood. In addition, while myelodysplastic syndromes are often characterized by pancytopenia, they may also occasionally present with thrombocytosis. So, who do we test and how? Begin with a thorough history and physical. Subsequently, consider the possibility of an inflammatory process and continue your workup as indicated. If the presence or degree of thrombocytosis remains unexplained, in addition to a history of thrombotic or unusual bleeding events, consider testing for a myeloproliferative neoplasm. A complete blood count is essential to the diagnosis and evaluation of thrombocytosis, and an accompanying peripheral blood film examination is also valuable to examine platelet and megakaryocyte morphology in addition to screening for leukemic blasts. Typically, first-line molecular testing involves a blood sample sent for BCR-ABL testing to exclude CML along with JAK2 mutation analysis. Should this testing return negative, you can send further molecular testing for the other mutations such as CalR and MPL. Bone marrow biopsy and aspirate is often indicated in the diagnostic criteria for diagnosis of a myeloproliferative neoplasm and if performed, would include pathology review, cytogenetics, and molecular testing. Furthermore, each myeloproliferative neoplasm has its own defined diagnostic criteria. For this podcast, we'll focus on a diagnosis of ET. For a diagnosis of ET to be met, there must be A. Thrombocytosis with greater than 450,000 per microliter of blood B. Bone marrow biopsy proliferation of a megakaryocyte lineage and C. Lack of meeting criteria for the other myeloid neoplastic disorders. In addition, proof of clonality with JAK2, CALR, or MPL, or other clonal markers, or absence of any identifiable reactive cause also needs to be identified. Moving on to treatment. The degree of thrombotic risk conferred by an elevated platelet count in the context of reactive thrombocytosis is not well characterized in the literature. Currently, there are no compelling studies that advocate for the use of antiplatelet agents routinely in thrombocytosis. Thus, surveillance of counts and clinical monitoring is typically the mainstay of management. However, note that reactive thrombocytosis typically reflects an underlying process, which should be investigated and treated accordingly. In contrast, thrombotic risk in the case of autonomous thrombocytosis is well described and can lead to significant morbidity and mortality for patients. Management of these conditions is ultimately dictated by the underlying disorder and its complications. For the purposes of this podcast, we will again discuss the management of essential thrombocytosis, or ET. As always, ensure that you counsel your patient about lifestyle modifications, such as smoking cessation, which are crucial to reducing the risk of thrombotic events. There are two major pharmacologic approaches to managing ET, antiplatelet therapy and cytoreduction. Antiplatelet therapy with low-dose aspirin, typically 81 mg PO daily in North America, is indicated in most patients with a diagnosis of ET to help reduce the risk of thrombotic events and to reduce vasomotor symptoms that patients may experience. Data supporting the use of aspirin in ET is based on extrapolation from the ECLAP randomized controlled trial, which examined the outcomes in PV as well as several retrospective cohort studies in ET. Care should be taken in prescribing aspirin to patients with very high platelet counts, for instance, greater than 1 million per microliter of blood, due to the risk of developing acquired von Willebrand factor disease with a higher bleeding propensity. Cytoreduction is more focused on reducing the absolute platelet count and therefore reduces the risk of complications associated with ET. It is typically used in patients over the age of 60 or those with a previous history of thrombosis. The first-line cytoreductive agent is hydroxyurea, with a starting dose of 15 milligrams per kilograms per day, tailored to typically target a platelet count of less than 400,000 per microliter of blood. Although generally well-tolerated and inexpensive, side effects from the medication include leg ulcers, gastrointestinal symptoms, and neutropenia from its bone marrow suppression. Anagrolide is an alternative cytoreductive agent, functioning as a phosphodiesterase inhibitor that prevents maturation of platelets from megakaryocytes. Although just as effective as hydroxyurea, it is associated with increased cardiac toxicity and myelofibrosis. In pregnant patients or as a second-line agent, pegylated interferon therapy can be used. In rare and serious cases, platelet can be used as a bridge to initiating cytoreduction. Keep in mind that the goal of these therapies is to reduce the risk of thrombotic events and symptoms in high-risk patients, such as those with age over 60, history of recurrent thrombosis, or multiple risk factors for thrombosis. Whether these medications prevent transformation of a myeloproliferative neoplasm into AML remains unclear. Time for a Medicine Minute. Interestingly, one of the therapies used for the myeloproliferative neoplasms used to include a radioisotope 32-phosphorus. This World War II-era therapy was first discovered through nuclear medicine studies, where it localized preferentially to the spleen, liver, and bone. Concerns about its safety were soon raised, and an association with increased lifetime rates of leukemia was noted. However, there might still be a role for this therapy in the elderly, given its cost-effectiveness and efficacy. All right, let's summarize what we've discussed today. Thrombocytosis refers to an elevated platelet count and is often incidentally discovered on a complete blood count. This is most commonly the result of an inflammatory process and is termed reactive thrombocytosis, the treatment of which is to correct the underlying disorder. However, when patients present with recurrent or unusual thrombotic events in the setting of an elevated platelet count, consider the possibility of a hematologic cause such as a myeloproliferative neoplasm. Diagnosis often requires bone marrow biopsy, an aspirate for molecular and cytogenetic studies, in addition to testing peripheral blood for specific genetic markers. Treatment is initiated depending on risk factors for thrombosis in the case of essential thrombocytosis. In this disorder, patients are typically on low-dose aspirin with the possibility of an addition of a cytoreductive agent such as hydroxyurea or anagrelide. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled The Essentials and Approach to Thrombocytosis. This episode was written by Dr. Shreyesh Dalmia, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Wendy Lim, hematology and thrombosis, as well as Dr. John Neary, general internal medicine. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karianopoulos and is overseen by Dr. Daniel Brandt Vegas. This podcast was produced and recorded by Allison Lai. Music production by Lakshman Visantha Mohan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As always, we have an associated infographic and extra resources on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.